Well, thank you, Phil. Um, that was more applause than I deserve because Jesus is the one who leads us and guides us, isn't he? I remember when I was a freshman in, at NDSU studying pharmacy, which is where I began, I had a mentor also. Her name was Ann Klockstead, and she's here today. It's the first time I think I've seen her since I graduated or since I left NDSU, but I hope that you who are upperclassmen are taking people underneath your wing and helping them to grow in Jesus because Anne was that for me, and it is an incredible blessing in life. So I just wanted to put that in there uh, for you to think about. So as you know, as I just said, I started out in pharmacy, and you never know where God is going to take you. One of my favorite, my husband's favorite saying is, God's not boring. And he's not. He can, he can tell you the rest of that, his favorite saying later, but... It starts out, God's not boring. And I never would have guessed as a little girl growing up in North Dakota with, in, a, in Kildare. I bet anybody here doesn't know where Kildare is, right? Not a soul. One person, wow. Or two people. Three, four. Oh, my goodness gracious. Um, who would have guessed that I would be who I am today and, and I would have studied what I've studied and I've traveled where I've traveled And it's because of God's putting his hand on my life. And he wants to do the same thing to you. Every single one of you. So my studies took me from uh, pharmacy and into understanding culture or uh, missiology. And I love teaching anthropology and communication. I do enjoy teaching research design, although it's a whole lot more work than anthropology and communication. But understanding and exegeting culture is an incredibly important part of who we are as Christian people today. Not one of you is going to go through life without having either a colleague or a classmate or a... uh, Perhaps you'll even marry somebody from a different culture. And we have to learn how to exegete cultures so that we can adequately live as Christians with other people. And so if you have not had a class on exegeting culture, I hope there's one here offered. Get a hold of Phil and say, I need that class. Because you need it just as well as any missionary in the world. But if you've studied anthropology and communication, you will find out that we often look at uh, cultures, we compare cultures, and we think about cultures through what we call dimensions. And uh, dimension can be something like a, a collective or a high group culture versus an individualistic or a low group culture. Or we can talk about a hot culture or a cold culture. You can talk about an event Uh, oriented culture versus a time-oriented culture. So there's all of these dimensions, which I don't have time to explain any of them, except I want to look specifically at one. And that culture, that dimension is called uncertainty avoidance. So what does uncertainty avoidance mean? Uncertainty avoidance culture is one in which the members of a culture feel threatened by ambiguous and unknown situations. 
Let's just avoid those things that we don't know about. They experience anxiety and distrust in the face of the unknown and therefore wish to have fixed habits and rituals and to know the truth with a capital T. Now, an uncertainty acceptance society embraces the unknown as adventure. They're more relaxed and they see difference as a curiosity and they welcome innovations and are open to changing jobs and sorting out multiple truths. That may sound a little academic, so let's make it more real to you. Okay, I have some questions. So when you go on vacation or on a trip, do you plan out each detail? Where you will stop for the night? Do you have your hotels booked? What sites you will see on the way, or do you know, or do you just know the end destination and do you just allow the rest to be an adventure and you'll stop when you feel like stopping? So how, how many of you are more like number one? You prefer to have everything sort of planned out, right? How many of you just like to let life happen the way it's going to happen, right? A whole bunch of you, right? So another question. Do you make contingency plans for all that might go wrong? Have you stored up a food supply, batteries, and toilet paper in case the city is shut down in a snowstorm? How many of you have done that? A few of you, right? Or do you just wait and see, you know, the, they always make it sound worse than it's going to be. We'll just see what happens and we'll figure it out and deal with it once it comes. How many of you are like that? Right, right, right. Okay, here's another one. Do you prefer a job where the exact specifics are spelled out or a teacher who tells you exactly what they want on a paper? Or are you open to studying abroad and changing jobs and moving to a new location and just like innovation experimentation? So how many of you like more the exact specifics spelled out, right? And how many of you are more relaxed about whatever you like innovation and experimentation? What does this have to do with following Jesus? You know, when we are following Jesus, the, cultural, the culture that we are brought up in, our default culture, informs how we live out our life with Jesus. So if you are more, if you lean more towards avoiding uncertainty, you may be a little more cautious when you think about, am I going to do what Jesus asked me to do? Am I going to be careful about where he leads me? Or if you embrace, maybe you don't want to have Jesus spell out that you have to go to college. You have to study at NCU. You know, so, so how you live out your life is going to be determined. In fact, in, in anthropology and communication, when you're blending that with your biblical studies, you're always looking at the fact that we see the scripture through the lens of our culture. And so we can have a tendency to just sort of ignore those pieces that don't make any sense in our culture. And that's one of the wonderful things about blending these two together. We begin to see our own faults and where we are missing, uh, missing things. But I would just like to talk a little bit about this uncertainty of avoidance and what it does to us as we decide to follow Jesus. So for those of you who lean toward the uncertainty avoidance into the dimension, I have good news for you. You are called to follow a God who is all-powerful, 
but he has chosen to use his power for our sake, and he is good. Furthermore, he's totally trustworthy. I love Psalm 121. I'll lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from God, who is so powerful that he made this whole universe, the heavens and the earth, and he's not going to let your foot stumble. And he's going to protect you by day and protect you by night, and he doesn't sleep or slumber. And he's going to keep your, your life. He's going to guard your path. He's going to watch you as you come in and you go out. You are always going to be with him. And we sang, you sang today, that it is safe if you build your house on his rock. Right? You remember singing that? You guys sang that. Do you believe it? He is secure. He is solid. You won't be shaken when the storms come. Or also in the, in the Gospels it says, why are you worried about what you're going to eat or drink? Or what you're going to wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? So God, who stepped out of his heavenly dimension and into human skin and allowed his own created creatures to mock, reject, and crucify him, even as he loved, forgave, healed, and poured out joy in the streets of Jerusalem, this same Savior invites us to be part of his family and community. And the Spirit assures us that we are his. You are his. And he loves you and empowers you. We need to cling to this truth. This needs to soak into who we are. It needs to become part of our identity. It needs to be so solid in us that no matter what comes your way, you know that you are a child of God. You know that you are loved by him. And you can trust him to lead you anywhere, any place, any time. So during these formative years, let that become who you are. But even as we can trust him, he asks us to be trustworthy with his mission. And so that's the other side. For those of you who like to embrace uncertainty, I have news for you too. As you read, as you read through the Gospels and Acts, I want you to, to do that in a, in a few sittings and look at all of the instances where, where the Spirit of God or Jesus himself tells people, you are loved, you are mine. And then the next thing that happens is not always feel safe or secure. So let me give you some examples. Mary, right away in Luke 1, right? The angel comes and says, do not be, af be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I mean, that's pretty special, right? The Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and, and a child will be born, etc. So Mary was blessed. She was called blessed. She was called favored, which means that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm. God was affirming her and who she was. But then, she bore the reputation of a girl pregnant out of wedlock in a town where everyone knew everybody, and they knew everything about everybody. 
not a comfortable, can even be a dangerous situation for a young woman like that. Time of shame, marginalization, possible expulsion from the family. You know, Joseph even thought about putting her away quietly. The panic, and then of course it doesn't stop after the baby is born in a strange place. There's panic and confusion of losing a son in Jerusalem. There's a burden of seeing him confronted and put down and by the religious rulers. And the family comes and says, we're going to take you away, uh, Jesus, because what are you doing out here? Um, and then finally she stood at the cross when all the disciples ran and hid. Not safe, not secure, not easy. Jesus, another example was baptized by John at the Jordan River, and the Spirit assured him that he was God's beloved Son. And what happens immediately after that? He was led, he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, a place of hunger and thirst, of wild beasts, poisonous snakes, scorpions, scorching heat by day, freezing cold by night, to be tested by the greatest tempter of all times. The very depth of who Jesus was and his calling was tested. And he passed the test, whereas the Israelites in the wilderness didn't. But the Spirit led him there and continues to lead him right up to the cross. I cannot imagine the uncertainty that Peter and James Peter and Andrew, James and John must have felt when they were called to leave their father's business or Stephen, Stephen full of faith in the Holy Spirit and then he was stoned to death. Notice the, the progression, right? You're blessed, you're called, you're touched by the Spirit and then you're on mission. And you meet the enemy, and you meet the, the um, suffering that goes with it. Paul, you know, Paul who is an exemplary model of someone who was met by Jesus and uh, who followed the Spirit, he was beaten and stoned and imprisoned and flogged and eventually martyred. But I've, I love this little uh, passage in, in uh, Acts 16 where it says that Paul was going from Pisidian Antioch to Troas, but that wasn't his goal. His immediate goal was to go to Bithynia or to uh, Galatia. And the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't go there. And then, no, you can't go there. 200 miles from, from Antioch to Troas. 200 miles on foot, dragging along Silas and uh, Luke, Timothy, can you imagine these guys walking along, you know, sleeping on the side of the road? They've got a backpack on their back, uh, dreadlocks in their hair. Were there mosquitoes? Were there bed bugs? If they could find a bed, were there fleas? Were there? Where did you take? I like a shower every day. I bet they didn't get that. Two hundred miles. And then it says in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. 
wasn't an easy life, was it? But Jesus predicted that this would happen. He said, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And then when they deliver you, uh, by the way, in Mark, it inserts as a testimony to them and the gospel must first be proclaimed. Okay? This is in Matthew uh, 10, 16, in case you're curious. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about what you're going to speak or what you're going to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you, etc. There is no promise in this passage by Jesus of rescue or even that the rulers and the kings and the people will believe. Only that their beatings, their persecution will become the testimony, along with the words the Spirit gives them, that will exercise global influence throughout the world. What an upside-down method of world evangelism. Persecution combined with the words of the Spirit is the assurance that the martyrs can have that their testimony will exercise global influence. Is this, is this global evangelization that Jesus was imagining? You know, we think that um, persecution isn't happening nowadays because we live in the United States and we don't see it. But it is all over this world. People are dying for their faith and suffering for their faith and losing jobs for their faith and getting kicked out of their families for their faith. And Jesus promises that this will be the testimony that the gospel is true, that Jesus is king. I've often asked the question, I'm just about out of town, but about out of time, but uh, we just came back from uh, meeting with 50 about 50 missionaries who have been expelled from a country, uh, and I'm assuming this is being recorded, right, and might be broadcast. It's expelled from a country, um, and they live in a, in a world of uncertainty. They don't know when they're going to lose uh, their visas. It's happening to colleagues. It's happening. Um, we've had to close down and send people to other uh, places in the area because of this. And we spent, we were at a four-day conference, and the first two days they talked about what you have to do to make sure that everything's in order for when you're kicked out. You know, they're living with this uncertainty. So, you know, you have to have a power of attorney for your bank account. You have to have somebody else with your keys. You have to have a power of attorney so somebody can take your travel with your children out of the country if they take you and, leave, and your children are left behind at school or someplace. And yet, they're weeping over their country. They're weeping over the land that God has called them to. And I've often asked, what is it that makes a missionary, what, someone who is led by the Spirit out of their comfort zone into this kind of world, not assured of safety and security, but they are assured of Jesus, 
The presence of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. This takes reckless courage. This takes confident courage. It takes the readiness to receive the blessing with the burden, the gift with responsibility. They go together. Are you willing to release your ability to control your future, to accept the uncertainty of the future because you have the certainty that the Spirit is with you and empowering you so that the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. Are you ready to pray not that you stay safe, but you'll stay faithful and obedient to what he calls you to, and that your life will be a testimony that Jesus is king? That is the challenge that I leave with you.